0: I did this incredibly stupid thing earlier today. I was cleaning up and sorting out some folders and for whatever reason I was doing, I was just blindly deleting things. I don't need this. I don't know what this is. This is all deleted. And I, I delete, delete, delete a ton of things. The next thing I know I've deleted the files I use to start the countdown for a stream. Like the, the looping ocean and the blue sparks, which I don't even think people saw, gone. And I, of course, you know, being me completely, have already emptied the trash bin. So that stuff's gone. I have to go back and, like, re-download it and put it back together, which is fine. It's not the end of the world. But it's one of those things where, like, a minute before I started, you know, pressing the button and queuing and, and getting ready to do this, I realized, where's my countdown it's cuz i i deleted it cuz you know sure that's a thing i would do uh this this stream is a good one this stream uh i'm excited about today's uh, tonight's a, a big deal uh because i have a sponsor i i have an actual sponsor that's actually you know i mean it's not anybody big it's not rage shadow of legends or anything but uh, it's certainly going to be uh, really nice. And um, it, 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 we're, we're trying to do some things here, you know, we're trying to get some stuff done. And I'm a little nervous, I got to say, and I'm hoping this stuff works. I was supposed to stream yesterday, and I apologize for really not being able to. Things came up, and I was just not able to really sit down and give it the time and attention it needed. So uh, that... St- the The stuff on crossing genres will now be uh, the podcast episodes for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. If you're looking for that or curious about that, uh, wherever your pods are cast, uh, just search for John Helps You Write Better. It'll pop right up. And there's that's where that stream is going. Now, tonight we're doing second drafts and, and second drafty things. And then uh, tomorrow, of course, is the writer's chat. So... That should be pretty darn good. Uh, we're looking to, you know, two out of three ain't bad, according to Meatloaf. So let's let's aim for that. On the on the flip side, beyond that, bigger than that, I just wanted to say thank you for everybody who's been coming through and checking stuff out, and visiting, and and doing all stuff like that. Uh, your comments and your feedback have just been great, even when even when they were critical, even when they were you know pointing out things I could do better. Uh, I really appreciate all of it, every single one of it, and I certainly appreciate every single one of you. So, thank you so much for joining me on this continued crazy adventure. And uh, I hope tonight I get to teach you a few things about second drafts. Here we go. I do have... I don't even know if this is going to play in the audio feed, but... Words and ideas can change the world. So tonight, oh, hi, I forgot to do an intro. I've been talking to myself all day about this, and you'd think when it was ready to go, I'd be ready to go. Uh, hi, everybody, I'm John. This is uh, John Helps You Write Better. And I'm streaming on a Tuesday. God, it's been forever since I streamed on a Tuesday. Um, this is how to save your second draft from disaster. And really, this is a continuation of, I guess it was about a year ago, uh, I started talking about how to build a better second draft. We are now leveling that up. We're going to do more with it, more about it, and get into some crunchier detail, which I'm I'm excited to, frankly. So, Yeah. We're going to go build a second draft and we're going to build it not so much from the ground up, but I'm assuming uh, that you out there, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, collaborators, co-conspirators, planners, plotters, dancers, boogiers, whomever you might be and comrades, whomever you might be. Uh, I'm assuming you've got your first first draft done, or if it's not entirely complete, you've at least reached a point where you're like, I got to start over. I got to do better. And you're committed to being more serious about moving forward with this thing you're writing, whatever it might be. Now, whether your goal is publication, whether your goal is just to say, hey, I wrote a thing, or whether your goal is anywhere or anything else – this is going to help you. This is going to make a substantial difference when it comes to, you know, sort of shaping and building how you approach story and how you do all the things you're going to need to do when it comes to story. Now, there's a theme in this. I don't know if you've, you know, noticed, but uh, the theme, if you're looking at all the slides and everything, the theme is fire because this is generally the point where we take our story, place it in the crucible, burn off its impurities and are left instead with a cleaner, readier, nicer, neater, messier, harder to deal with draft. This is where we forge the story stuff. This is where we make a substantial difference for what happens with the characters and with the plans going forward. And really, if your first draft was just the getting it out of your head and getting it, you know, to see if it was complete unto itself. It's the second draft that turns a story into something with legs. And it turns that story into something publishable or printable or shareable or complete. The second draft is where we really put the work in. So let's put the work in. But we can't do any of that without at least pointing out that tonight's stream is sponsored by my patrons. So over at patreon.com slash better. Uh, That's the home of Watch Movies Write Better, where every week... We do just what it says. We watch movies, and then we learn how to write better. We walk through popular film. We walk through old film, good movies, bad movies, messy TV shows, streaming service stuff, all of it, to take it apart, to look at it, to see what ticks, to see how it works, to see what they could do better, to see what we can learn. So if we're doing our own thing or we're sampling or we're just trying to grow as writers, what tools can we put in our toolboxes? Watch movies, write better is... There to help you succeed no matter what you're writing. I guarantee you, this has been going now for a couple of years, I guarantee you um, there's a movie I've covered that will help you learn to get better at a thing you feel you need to get better at. Uh, Last week, we just did, uh, what did we do? We just wrapped up, most recently, we just wrapped up The Last of Us show from HBO. Prior to that, we did uh, Wakanda Forever, the Black Panther sequel, and this Friday, we'll be doing The Woman King, so we're covering a, a breadth of things and before that we did all the jurassic park movies we did all, all the Jurassic world movies i should be be clearer about that we did all the star trek movies all this all the star wars movies we've covered the all the twilight movies um we've covered king kong we've covered a ton of stuff and we're only looking to do more. So if you're interested in being able to sit on your couch and watch TV and then somehow have that transform into being better writing advice, $2 a month. It's all I ask. Two bucks a month. John Helps You Write Better. Patreon.com slash John Helps You Write Better. Watch movies, write better. The proud sponsors of tonight's fairly crunchy and educational stream. So with that said, here we go. Let's get started with part one. The most important thing you're going to do when it comes to this second draft, when you've got your first draft, it's all laid out. Maybe it's saved as a file. Maybe you printed it out. Maybe you wrote it longhand in one of those journals you keep buying and you finally filled. Who knows? But you've got it there and now it's time to turn it into a second draft you've opened up a new file you've opened up a new word doc a new google doc or whatever you've opened up this blank space and it's time to suddenly transmogrify this sucker into a second draft which means the first thing we have to do is figure out what to keep and figure out what goes this is not necessarily as simple as it sounds because for a lot of writers, what happens is you sit down and you start saying, okay, I'm going to cut X, I'm going to cut Y, I'm going to cut Z. And then you start cutting these things out because you didn't like them or because you, you know, you're know you just looking for things to cut because you're just not sure it was good enough. And you realize how badly interconnected and woven together your story is so that in cutting one thing out, you've left yourself a tangle of mess that you're going to need to sort through and sift through in an effort just to close the gap or fix the re- make the repairs or fix the story figuring out what to keep and what goes is for so many writers a question mark a giant sense of the hell do I do I don't know I I just I guess I just retype everything and yeah that that is one approach to tell the story entirely differently trying to write every sentence in a new way that's the old-fashioned way to do it it's still viable you can more than welcome to give that a try but What if I gave you a better set of tools to figure out how to take your first draft and turn it into a second draft? I mean, yes, you're going to want to end up pasting some portions of it into a new document. Don't just rename the old file to something new. Make a new file. It's going to help make your life a lot easier down the road. But what if I gave you some tools? What if we talked about how to sort out the keep from the toss? What if we figured out a way to do that in a way that was practical that didn't rely on abstract things like story algebra or overly complicated you know interconnected architecture decisions about narrative design what if we just made the decision making process simpler not necessarily faster because faster isn't really a thing but what if we simplified it what if we kept it going pretty straightforward So I'm going to tell you this. Here's the method. But two things we have to talk about first. Item number one, you have to understand that from your first draft to the end of your second draft, not everything in your first draft is going to make it into the second. Not everything can stay. You don't just get to cut one or two words and call it a day. You get to pick and choose some stuff. Now, granted, there's going to be some stuff that stays like let's not freak out here You're, some stuff's going to make it pretty much as is verbatim just copy and paste but not everything and this is don't look don't flip it around on its head either and go 99% of it's going to get cut what am i going to do no we're not going to hang out on the extremes come come away from the ledge and just recognize that some of the stuff in your first draft will not survive some of it's going to go. Some of it's going to get rewritten. Some of it's going to get dropped and, and ignored and skipped. And some of it's going to stay. So that's the first element. However, here's the second element. And this is where I am going to take a sharp left turn away from social media. Because some of the advice that steers us into crafting and shaping second drafts, crafts and shapes second drafts in terms of the the story being a book, thinking about it in terms of your production or publication goal. And it sounds like that makes sense because ultimately that's where you're going. Sure. But chances are you're not going to go straight from second draft to published book. You could. I mean, we could do a lot of things. We could publish our first drafts. But more than likely, you're crafting that second draft to really hammer out the story, make clear decisions about what goes and what stays, and then you'll do a third draft where you'll clean everything up, make it nice, neat, and polished, and then go query or publish the third draft. But in that advice to tell you, like, you got to think about it in terms of a finished book, no, you're still in the process of making it. So that advice that says, pay attention to the word count, because that's going to be a ceiling that, you know, keeps your story contained— Don't. Do not sweat the word count, especially if you are like in the first three weeks or so of dealing with your second draft. If you are still in the process of cutting and pasting things over, don't worry about your word count. That is something, it can be a pain in the ass to deal with, especially if you're somebody who, how do I put this politely, lacks discipline and restraint and ends up producing an extra novel in itself just to add to the existing first draft like your first draft was 70,000 words but oh golly gee lol it turns out that my second draft well I just kept writing and now it's 300,000 words like don't do that that that's that's too far and ultimately that just makes up for a headache down the road so instead of sweating word count and thinking that's a permission slip to just add and add and add and add and add we'll talk about that later Instead, rather than just see that as a number that, yeah, I know later I'm going to have to start thinking about constraining my story. But for right now, I'm just looking to transform this loose pile of ideas into something resembling a story with a shape. Don't lock in to the idea of word count more so than locking into the idea of I'm trying to tell a story. Which leads us to the method for crafting that story. I've got three piles here. Keep, Cut, and maybe. Now, if you're looking at the graphic, maybe it's got this big giant red question mark. That's on purpose. I'll talk about that in a second. But I want to start with the stuff that will absolutely be kept no matter what draft we're in because it's the spine of a story. There's really no way around it, though I realize now in looking at this, I've left one thing off the list, so I want to address that when we get to it. But I want to talk about the stuff that's going to be kept. Now, it when I say keep... I don't necessarily mean I'm going to just take the item from the first draft and paste it verbatim into the second draft. For some of that stuff, I will, sure. But there's also a lot of opportunity and chance to change it, fix it, flesh it out, add more words to it, rewrite it, make it better. But the concept, that's going to stay. The words, they're pretty variable. So here's what goes into the keep pile. Any plot critical scene. So here's your main plot, whatever it is. If looking at a a scene-by-scene basis, I'm assuming you can do that. If you don't know what a scene is, chances are you've sort of intuitively shaped it so that a chapter is a scene or a chapter has two big things going and each of those big things is more or less a scene. If you still can't determine what your scenes are, go ask for help i'd be happy to you know take a look at some pages and help you figure out what a scene is and isn't but by and large you should be able to know what your scenes are whether you call them chapters or whether it's one thing per chapter or whether it's a couple pages within a chapter whatever you should be able to identify scenes if those scenes are absolutely positively critical to the main plot meaning if we took them out pretended they didn't exist the main plot of the story would not make sense those are plot critical scenes they have to be kept because that's how we form the spine for our story likewise the same thing's true with our character arc scenes the scenes that demonstrate the character somewhere on the path of their arc it's in its start state it's developing it's climax it's resolution. Somewhere along that arc, there's a scene or part of a scene where a character is dealing with whatever, doing whatever, trying to develop and grow. Those, those portions of scene or scenes, they have to stay because that's the character arc. One more thing here in terms of the critical stuff theme-critical scenes. You're going to hear me talk about theme probably more than we did before in the previous second draft stuff because theme matters. And if you're ever wondering, hey, what's one of the easiest ways I can level up my writing from one thing to the next? It's in dealing with themes. It's in having something to say that isn't just, this is the story of, you know, a girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world. This is the story of, you know, a small town bus and this, that, and the other. A theme is a lesson you want the reader to install in their own lives. It's a lesson that your story is an example of that the reader can say, ah, when I get into that situation, I can draw focus and hope and pride and resolution and and whatever from this story. Here's a good example of, you know, found family. And I, somebody who, you know, wants to surround myself with found family rather than biological family, draw strength from my story. Themes matter. And if you're ever wondering what one of the um, under-talked about, under-defined uh, elements that leads to massive rejection in traditional spaces, it's because you don't have any themes. Or if you do, you don't do anything with them. You have to. You need to. They're, they're important. You have to have multiple scenes that illustrate a theme in part. So if you have a theme of found family, you're probably going to have two to four two to five scenes over the course of the whole ass book that talk about the need for found family, development of found family, the fact that found family is tested and the fact that found family is resolved. You're going to treat your theme or at least your theme development like an arc. But when a story doesn't have a theme, it's more or less going to come across to the reader. Like you're just presenting facts. This happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened, which is fine. If you're, you know, just aiming to, recite a story, but if we're trying to do something in terms of getting a book that sticks with a reader and resonates and has some kind of depth to it, we bring theme in. So those scenes that are illustrative of that particular theme, they have to stay. Without them, you you lose your theme. Without your character arc scenes, you lose your character arc. Without your plot critical scenes, you lose your plot. The thing I omitted here are the world-building critical scenes. Here's the tricky part, and I'm going to talk to my fantasy authors just for a hot second. Look, I know that you went, like, super crazy imaginative and thought up all this complicated lore and this whole backstory for, like, multiple kingdoms and continents and magic weapons and doodads and bells and whistles and a pantheon and four guys named Kevin. I I know you, like, really, really put together, like, a whole ass thing. I get it. Good for you. You're imaginative. Hooray! Now, let's let's have a serious moment for a second. We don't need all of that. We don't need all of that. Some of it's going to stay. Some of it's going to go. How we determine what the world-building critical stuff is, you think about its relationship and its relevance to the other elements we've talked about. So the world-building that is critical for the sake of the plot, that has to stay. The world building that is critical for the sake of the character arc, that has to stay. The world building that is critical for the theme or themes, that has to stay. The other stuff, well, the other stuff we're going to file away for maybe, but we'll get to maybe in a minute. But in terms of our critical spine, plot, character arc, theme, world building, we need those. They have to stay. Now, you might end up rewriting them, but what I want you to do, especially if you're starting out early, is just copy and paste them with big, giant Swiss cheese holes, just one paragraph after the other, into that new document, into that second draft. I don't care if you just pasted the thing from page 45 and now it's the sixth paragraph in a Google Doc. I don't care. We're just trying to make essentially a stick figure drawing of your story. There are going to be gaps. There are going to be spaces. We want that. We embrace that. So what else do we need? What else goes in this keep pile? Well, we're going to need any scene or moment or part of text where we're introducing a point of view character. Now, if you just have one point of view character, one narrating character, whether we're in first person or we're only really following a character in third person in some way, shape, or form, whatever scene we use to introduce that character, even if it's the introduction of the story, That has to stay because we need some way of connecting the reader to our point of view character. That's got to stay. If you're a writer, maybe you're a fantasy writer, maybe not, where you've got multiple points of view and you've got a couple different characters all getting introduced at different times, all of them stay for now. We will talk about what to do with multiple characters later on tonight. But for now, every point of view character with an introduction, keep them in there. And they have to be a point-of-view character. Not just like, oh, this is the sentence where, you know, Steve shows up. Well, if Steve is like a tertiary character who's like basically a non-factor in the book, we don't really need to worry about Steve right now. Just the point-of-view characters. Just the characters the reader directly follows over the course of the story. Two more things. Two more things go in our keep pile before we jump to the cut pile. We have to keep the main plot climax. Just the climax, how it starts, how it develops, how it ends. How that climax ends is not the third act resolution. It's just whatever section of text where the climax is done. You've defeated the bad wizard. We've thrown the guy off the cliff. We uh, defused the bomb. It's wherever the climax ends. The main plot climax needs to stay on the keep list. Slap it in there, paste it in there, okay? One more thing. Any climax for a subplot has to stay right now. So if your subplot is the character arc, if your subplot is, oh, by the way, those two other characters fall in love. If your subplot is, meanwhile, this is happening with Aquaman, whatever it might be, the climax for your subplot has to stay. Again, not the resolution, just the climax itself. Those are the critical pieces for the stick figure of our drawing. Everything else goes into maybe. Maybe is a pretty big catch-all. We'll talk about maybe in particular in a minute, but first I want to go to the things that absolutely positively get cut out of that first draft. And for a lot of writers, this ends up often being a lot of text, and there is occasionally a good amount of pushback. Oh, I can't cut that, John. I really like that. Oh, no. I I get that you like it, but do you like it more than moving forward towards your goal? Always weigh that out. Always stop for a minute and think, is it more important for you to keep this thing you like? In this book, I'm not saying delete it and wipe it from your brain. I'm saying this just can't sit in this manuscript. Go copy and paste it into a file. Keep forever. That's fine. But in this book, this stuff that gets cut, is it more important that it stay in this book or is it more important that you accomplish your overall storytelling or publishing goal? Pick. Make a decision. Writing is the act of making a decision. And this is the first, one of the first second draft decisions we have to make. So here's what gets cut. If it's a scene that repeats information already stated prior to it in the story. So if we're looking at scene 45, I'm making up numbers. We're looking at scene 45 and all of a sudden we realize scene 45 repeats this stuff from scene 30. Maybe a different character says the thing, but it's basically just a recap of what we already know. That's a scene to cut. Doesn't matter what it is. I don't care. Now, if you're going to tell me that it's a repeated information inside your climax or your subplot or, or something more critical, then we have a different issue to address when it comes time to start rebuilding individual sections. But if you have seen somewhere in your second act where your characters are basically just repeating shit, they can get cut. Without hesitation, just cut it. I know it's going to leave some frayed ends. I know it's going to leave a hole. I know it's going to mess up everything. The purpose is we're trying to take pieces from one draft and create a skeleton that we will fill in and embellish and develop over time. But first, we have to cut away the stuff that's absolutely positively not going to make it. Stuff that's absolutely not useful for us. Which also includes scenes that are not related or not necessary or not connected to the main plot or any subplots. I'm talking about like the random tertiary subplots where you have a character go out and buy a pair of sneakers or the extra short conversation two pilots have right before they go do the main climax. Like it's it doesn't give us anything more. We don't already know. It doesn't develop anything. We have a question about. It doesn't pertain to the pot. It's just sort of filler. It's just kind of stuff that happens that again, maybe you liked writing it. There's nothing wrong with liking your work. But in terms of its utility for moving forward, this is not related to a subplot. This is not related to a main plot. This is not related to a theme. This is not related to anything really, really important. It can get cut. Not even going to the maybe pile. Just cut it. Lose the dead wood. Now, let's talk just for a second. If you're somebody who's thinking long term already, and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to write a series. I'm going to write a couple different books. This is the first of many. It's part of a trilogy. It's part of a, 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 a whole corpus. I'm going to write 15 of these suckers. Sure, sure you are. Okay, well, we're only going to write one book at a time, just, you know, for organization's sake. And right now, if this is your second draft, if you have gone out of your way to introduce elements that really don't matter to this story, but will totally, absolutely matter to a story you haven't even come close to thinking about, like we're in book one and you're setting up book five and you're expecting the reader to stop and think about, oh my God, I remember that one sentence on chapter two. The scenes that set up material that won't be found in this book or even in the next book or some other book yet to be determined, those scenes get cut outright cut. We want to create a little boundary, a fence around this story so that it's just this story with just this stuff. Yeah, there's going to be another book later. And when it comes time to do that book, then you're going to have to figure out a reason to connect or a method for connecting current, you know, new story to the existing stuff. But you don't do that starting your second draft of this book. That's not this job. That's a different job. One job at a time, please. Those are the things that absolutely positively hugely get cut, period. With however much pushback you want, they still get cut. Between our keep pile and our cut pile, chances are you've got some Swiss cheese now in that first draft. It no longer, maybe it doesn't read contiguously. Maybe we've cut out some things, so there's some, some gaps in the story. Maybe it's some stuff that, it, it's still sort of the story, but it feels looser, it feels disconnected, it feels messier. This is where the maybe pile comes in. In that messy, transformative, undergoing evolution state, while things are still all up in the air, if you can get as clear-headed as possible, and really sit down and think about like, okay, what, given the stuff that's made the cut, is there anything I don't like? I wrote it and it, it fits in the story, but I was never really happy with the idea that we had to have a scene at the mall. Or I'm not entirely sure it was important for our two teen characters to have biology class in chapter five. Or I don't know if we need a second villain to just show up randomly. Anything that you've been on the fence about cutting, cut. Even if that leaves more Swiss cheese, even if that makes a mess, cut it and don't plan on moving it forward. Anything where you've been fairly certain you could write it better and not just different. I don't mean like I could make that person a blonde this time. I mean, you could make substantial improvement. You could definitely say this thing, whatever it is, clearer, more accurately, more more dramatically, more intensely, more whateverly. That's the stuff that goes in the maybe pile. A lot of your second draft is going to come out of that maybe pile, like the creature rising out of the Black Lagoon. And it's going to fight its way into the keep pile based on how you craft it based on what you try to transmogrify it into. And anything that doesn't really hold up to that scrutiny, put in the cut pile. Maybe is our workspace. Keep is not our goal space. We're not trying to keep everything. Because remember, this started off with the idea that not everything's going to stay. So don't try to keep 90% of the story and just fill in the gaps around 10 Don't think about it in terms of strange percentages like that because you'll spin your wheels forever and make no progress. What you want to think about is what's the absolute critical stuff? That's got to get kept. And everything else, as long as it's not obviously extraneous, goes into the maybe. And then on a case-by-case basis, scene-by-scene, idea-by-idea, you interrogate it, you poke it with a stick, you really stop and think and look at it and then make a decision about, okay, well, this can stay. I can make this more critical, but I'll have to rewrite it. That's how we start really building the writing side of, this, of sort of the formation and foundation of a second draft. Aim for maybe, and then push yourself to write the maybes better. Not shorter, not more minimalist, not more complicated either. Remember, we're not hanging out on the extremes tonight. The whole point is to just look at the stuff in process and get it into its best shape and then plug it into the existing stuff already in the keep pile and then fill the holes in as they come. That is the keep maybe cut system for developing the base of a draft. It is super useful. I strongly recommend it. Whether you want to do this with like a legal pad in three columns or a list or note cards or just printed out pages where you label things, keep cut and maybe whatever you need to do to visually organize this or digitally orient this. I leave that entirely up to you. I think this is going to be really good for you, especially if you're somebody who's sort of overwhelmed by the process of the second draft, but you know, you need to make one and you're just not really sure what to do sometimes. And it feels an awful lot like you're just re typing or repasting things. I'm My challenge to you here with the keep maybe cut is to do more than just repeat yourself. Repeat yourself, but with function, but with purpose. On we go. In order to get really good at this, in order to do that interrogating I just talked about, we want to figure out what questions we're asking in this manuscript and of this manuscript. So I'm dividing them into three groups. There are no world questions because the world is incredibly modular and variable. If you need to suddenly add some world-building details to patch a hole or resolve a thing, by all means do so. The world is always there to act functionally as duct tape. So that leaves us three different sets of questions, three different abstract concepts that you, by the end of the drafting process and throughout the drafting process as a whole, should be getting better at answering. If, for whatever reason, in the course of your second draft, especially early in the process, you are entirely able to answer these questions, that's fine. It's not wrong or bad if, if you just happen to know how to do this. But don't be surprised if in the course of asking these questions... You realize, oh, I need to write a thing. Oh, okay, in order to answer this question, I have to add a scene where this happens or I have to add the thing that does this. That's normal. We want that. We're looking for that. This is how we fill in some of that Swiss cheese. This is how we fortify what's on the keep list. This is how we make the writing better. We start looking at things in terms of questions, and I'm going to walk you through them all. Let's start with plot questions because they're going to be some of the most critical and the most like straightforward ones to ask that will make a difference when it comes to organizing the story. And our first question is probably the most common one. What is your story's main plot? You should be able to at some point in the second drafting process, get it down to maybe like one to three sentences tops. And it should be detailed. It shouldn't, you know, don't, in an effort to get it down to one sentence, don't just say, it's a guy who does stuff and things. You know, you should be able to lay out the sentence. This isn't a, a challenge to see how few words you can use. This is a matter of, well, what the hell is your main plot? Remember, plot's conflict. So if you can frame this sentence or these sentences around conflict, it makes this a hell of a lot easier going forward. So what is the main plot? Second, how does this plot, whatever it is, get started? How is this plot initiated? You know, is it uh, the detective is called to the scene of the crime? Or somebody wakes up and finds uh, the dead body in the other room? Or um, the king issues a quest for any brave knight out in the wilderness? Anything like that. How is this plot initiated? Chances are there's probably a scene where that happens or there needs to be a scene where that happens. How is this plot developed once it's initiated? What happens? In what order? And to some degree, why? So if we are, you know, a knight on a quest and we're going from point A to point B... Along the road from A to B, there's all these little stops and all these little events along the way. Those events that cause things to happen that make the trip from A to B more substantial than just, I'm crossing the street. Those developments make a difference and affect and impact the character because otherwise they just do the plot by crossing the street and the story would be like two pages long. Those plot developments should have an impact on character should have an impact on the plot should have an impact on the theme on the story and ultimately on the reader how is your plot developed so yeah it's a quest to go from a to b it's you know we're going to go throw this ring in the volcano we're going to solve the murderer before they strike again we're going to stop the bank robber we're going to save gotham we're going to you know fight lex luthor whatever it might be this plot has steps in it what are those steps why are the steps those steps? Why pick those? In what order? What are they? How many do you have? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 30, 60, 90, whatever. How is your plot developed? Now we're going to start interrogating the nature of the plot. Because up to this point, we've just listed specifics in terms of plot composition and construction. We've been asking some what's and some how's. Now we're going to throw a why in there just to see what happens and it's a good why it is it is a useful tool to ask why periodically in the course of writing whatever we're writing why is this plot whatever it is why is this plot a challenge and this is important when we're taking first draft into second draft because it's that challenge that generates the readers want to see the character succeed if that plot's not a challenge if it's not, you know, surrounded by some amount of unknown, if it's not, you know, hard to do, why wasn't it done already? If it's just a matter of A to B and it's as simple as crossing the street, and there's no real sense of danger or threat, and it's just a matter of, well, the guy just has to cross the street, why hasn't he already? Challenge matters. Because challenge makes the reward of that challenge more substantial. If you have to work a little harder at something, it feels more valuable than if you can just have it handed to you. Why is this plot a challenge? Is it because there's a fire-breathing dragon in the middle of the road? Is it because, you know, watch out, the floor is lava? Is it because in order to cross the street you have to first argue with somebody's mom? Like, why is this plot a challenge? And we're going to follow this up. Let's add more to it. This plot, that's a challenge for whatever reason it's a challenge. This plot is gonna take something from the from the character. It, otherwise it would be easy. Otherwise it would be done already. This plot has costs, hidden costs or known costs. In order to do this, you have to chop off a finger. In order to, you know, cross this uncrossable line, you have to sell your soul. In order to play the blues really well, you must meet the devil at the crossroads. What are the costs the character has to pay, or possibly pay, in order to accomplish this plot? What that's going to do is impact the character in such a way that they're not perfect. I don't care if we're talking about a romance novel. I don't care if we're talking about an early reader with a superhero book. No plot should leave a character untouched. Otherwise, it feels like the action and event and challenge of that plot are really insignificant. So what we want to do is set up a plot, whatever it might be, where there are some costs. Maybe it's not always lose a finger, but maybe it's a sense of, you know, lose your innocence. Grow up a little fucking bit. Lose all your money. Find out what's really important. Give up on one dream to find a better dream along the way. There are costs. What are they? Find them. If you do these two the, these two whys or this why and this what and you find out that there isn't really a lot of material for it in the manuscript, guess what you get to write? Brand new material. Hooray. And lastly, when it comes to plot, how is the plot resolved? We're going to bring it back to a construction concrete question. How does this plot get resolved? Oh, we throw the mad scientist off their Zeppelin. Oh, we uh, we create a device that you know, emits a tachyon wave that causes the space monster to run away crying. How is this plot resolved? Those are your plot questions. That's what's going to take your first draft and bump it up a couple levels. Kick it in the pants. Add some detail. Let's go on to the character questions. So now we're talking about character. We are Slightly, at least at this abstract point, untangling character discussion from plot discussion. Because plot is what they do, but character is who they are. So what is your main character arc? What is it? Are they looking to grow and, you know, gain some self-esteem? Are they looking to believe in themselves? Are they looking to forgive themselves for a perceived slight? I don't know. What's the main character arc? And then we follow it up with a how. How is this arc initiated? How does this arc start? You might also frame this as, when does this arc start? Now, usually that means there's a moment of recognition where they realize, oh, man, I can't keep living this way. I've got to do something to change my life. How is this arc initiated? Are your parents murdered by stormtroopers? Do you suddenly realize that in order to sneak you and your girlfriend off into uh, your future together, you realize you have to get inveigled into the Imperial Navy? How is this arc initiated? And much like the plot, how does this arc develop? It's not just going to be one, two steps. It's going to be multiple steps along the way because changing and growing as a person, whether they are fictive or not, takes time and effort. So how does this arc develop? Back to concrete after that, how does the arc resolve? Once the character has done whatever they need to do in order to develop, how does this arc wrap up? They do believe in themselves, and that's why they're able to use the machine. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. How does the arc resolve? It matters because one of the most common problems, and we'll talk about problems later on, is arcs don't resolve, they just stop meaning you stop talking about it and you just have to kind of go, yeah, well, it's done. They did it. You got to make that clearer. So how does the arc resolve? Next element. How is the character different after resolving the arc? This is what makes the arc matter. So you started them off as somebody who, you know, will use Ebenezer Scrooge from A Christmas Carol. At the start of his arc, he's convinced that food poisoning has brought on hallucinations, which is why he's seeing ghosts. And by the end of the arc, after dealing with, you know, seeing a disabled person, seeing happy people, realizing that he's, you know, a piece of shit. And then realizing that, oh my God, you're going to die. He suddenly becomes this very magnanimous capitalist who happens to give away all his money as if that's a thing that could exist. And, That shows a total transformation of character, and that's how the arc demonstrates the character is different once the arc is done. Your arc, whatever it might be, doesn't have to radically 180 the character. They go from being a jerk to the nicest person ever. I mean, it's possible, but if your arc is something more like they learn the value of trusting someone else then you just need to demonstrate them doing the thing that is their changed element, their changed state. Oh, they finally opened up, and now they're reaping the benefits by being in a loving relationship with another being. Oh, they finally believe in themselves, so we see them you know, f- driving you know, with their eyes closed. Or they learn to parallel park, and they get their driver's license or whatever. You've got to show that character, though, as being different after going through the events of the arc, because otherwise it's going to seem like, well, the character didn't change. Who gives a shit? which is what you really want to avoid. And lastly, our third group, theme. And we talked about theme a second ago, but now we're going to dig in a little deeper. What are the central theme or themes of the story? You, you want at least one, I would recommend somewhere between one and three. Three is a pretty big thing to ask. One or two is plenty plenty of theme because you can tie it to main plot. You can tie it to character arc. You can tie it through the center of the story. One or two themes is more than enough because you're going to make them pretty critical. What are those themes of the story? If you don't know, if you're not sure what your theme is, what kind of lesson does your character learn What kind of growth does your character experience and what kind of statements are you making to the reader? Hey, I'm trying to talk to you reader and tell you that sometimes found family is more important than biological family and you don't have to be alone. Or I think I, the author, think it's really valuable for you to be communicative with your feelings. That kind of stuff. That's a theme. What are the central themes of your story? One to three of them, please. How are these themes expressed? How do they come across? Are they the end result of scenes that leave us thinking about like, man, that scene would have gone better if only our character was more open and communicative. How are these themes and these ideas put forward? Not that you want to put these words in characters' mouths where they want to go, you know, Susan, it's really important to be communicative. Like you don't want to get on the nose with it. You want to be a little bit more subtle than that. But by and large, you have to know how these themes are expressed in your story. Where? Are, where in the, ce- in the which scenes? To what degree? And lastly, what are the messages of this story? So if a theme is an idea, the message is how the reader packages it and takes it away. The message of it's important to be communicative and honest in your conversations or communicative with your partners, the message there is, Hey, it's scary but good to be communicative. The message is an interpretation of the theme. Where are those messages and how do they get transmitted to the reader? Generally, this is going to be done through the main character. Interesting note, if you're crafting a story game, then your player is functionally your reader, but your player is also functionally the main character. So if you're writing a tabletop role-playing game, the message you're trying to get across is something in the element of the state of play. And the themes are the way your game mechanics facilitate a certain set of actions and get everybody doing stuff in a certain specific way. Just something to chew on, because I know people out there are listening to this and they're game people more than they're novel people. And the theme is how we bridge that gap, by the way. But these questions... How many are there? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. 14 questions are more than enough to help carry you forward and really give your second draft some substance. But let's keep moving on. Part 2. More fire. I love this picture. Uh, The keys to improving your manuscript. So when I work with clients... I run into this, there's, there's this moment about two to three meetings in, right? There's this moment where we're talking about what the book needs and what's going on and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden they ask this question of, well, I've been writing, but I don't know if I'm getting any better. I just know I'm adding to the book. I just know I'm doing more stuff, but I don't know if it's any better. Let me tell you how to get it better. The Keys to Improving Your Manuscript. I got a couple of them. And unfortunately, there's, there, there's a list because there's some talking involved here. So we'll walk through each of these. First, though, I'm going to get a mouthful of tea. I'm going to put on a light because I'm sitting in the goddamn dark. So two seconds. Just hum along to yourselves. All right, we're back. I put on a light. Now I can read my own monitor. How nice. So the keys to improving your manuscript, no matter its genre, no matter its complexity, no matter how messy it is, no matter how many times you self-deprecate trying to get me to think that you're like not good at this. Here we go. What you need to do, first and foremost, is prioritize refining over adding or subtracting. We talked about this a little bit earlier when we talked about word count. A lot of people, when they start shaping a second draft, start worrying that the things get, it's growing. It's like the blob that eats Cleveland. It's just just big. I just keep adding stuff to it. And whenever you find a problem, your solution is to add. Oh, I'm going to put in a scene. I'm going to add some characters. I'm going to add more stuff. I'm going to add another, like, two chapters because I want them to have a scene with a hang glider or whatever. Instead of prioritizing for addition, prioritize over refining what already is there. How can you take the content you got and make it better before we add new stuff? Yep, there's going to be plenty of addition. There's no way around it. But first and foremost, can we strengthen the stuff we have, please, before we start bringing in new material? Likewise, we don't want to prioritize subtraction. Oh, my God, the story is huge. I have to start making huge, giant, radical cuts. If that's the case, start over entirely. If you're looking at a story and and you're trying to aim for 85,000 words in romance and you you hand your editor, your coach, your writing partner, whatever, 300,000 words and you are unwilling to make substantial changes, start over. You wrote a trunk novel, good for you. You wrote a whole thing, but let's start over and try to do better from the jump, please. It's not a it's not the same thing to be, you know, as saying I'm trying to aim for 85,000 words and I have 90. Help me pare this down. That's manageable. That's doable. There's still going to be some level of subtraction, still some level of transformation in text, but you're not looking to basically take a whole ass novel away from your novel in order to get it to work. Don't just subtract, and then use that as justification for beating yourself up. Yes, you overwrote. Yeah, there's too much here. I'm sorry. You you didn't totally fuck everything up, but at the same time, you way overshot the target. It's time to try again. It's easier to try again in those cases than it is to get you to see the value in slowly excising piece after piece. And besides, if you're just, you know, I got to cut 200,000 words and you're most comfortable just cutting commas or cutting contractions, you're never, ever going to get enough words out that way. You've got to start looking at big, giant wholesale cuts. But instead, we want to prioritize developing what's there so that later we can figure out how much we have to add to it rather than trying to reverse engineer and find our manuscript entirely in the edit. Next thing. We don't want to add to justify. We want to add to qualify, which is a way of saying, okay, I've presented the story problem. Now, instead of giving you the backstory as to why this thing is a problem, okay, we have to talk about the two trees and the two trees with the light and the elves and the this and the that and the other thing. And I'm going to explain it for like two whole appendices rather than justify why it's a problem rather than add material just to re-explain the shit you've already talked about. Add material when you're going to take the existing stuff and give it some depth. You're not adding to explain why it's a problem. You're adding to describe the degree of the problem. You're adding to qualify as opposed to adding to justify. In broader terms, let's suppose you have a character who's trying to... um, They're a fish out of water, let's say. Adding to justify would be constantly explaining that they're a fish out of water. Whereas adding to qualify would be, instead of repeating over and over, oh, they're new, they're not from here, would be, okay, saying they're not from here and then developing the feelings of not being from there. Are they lonely? Are they lost? Are they confused? Are they angry? Are they resentful? How does it make them feel that they're the whatever they are, the fish out of water? Add to qualify, more than you add to justify, and you will have an easier time building a stronger second draft. However, and I'm going to address the the what's the word? less disciplined, less organized writers for this one. Just because you're going to add more characters does not automatically mean you are adding more action. You're just cluttering things up. Just because you have six characters in a scene does not mean that scene is suddenly more intense. It's just that you have six proper nouns floating on the page. More characters is not always a solution to a problem. More characters or generating more characters is usually a problem unto itself. Don't solve problems just by adding characters, especially if it wasn't a problem to begin with. Next, though we're going to swing the other way and go out to that other extreme. Fiction is seldom minimalist. There's an effort usually in writers who have never really pushed themselves at great length, there is an effort to try and get the story over and done as quickly as possible. Maybe that's hesitation or fear that there are if they if they write for a long time they won't be able to stop. Or they won't be able to rein themselves in, or they don't have enough confidence in their story structure. So they they try to like breeze through as quickly as possible and and tell the story in the fewest amount of words, the fewest amount of beats, and then they're left with like a thirty-five thousand word piece, and they're wondering why they can't get anybody publishing wise to take a look at it, and they don't really know how to sell it, and they don't really know how to build a career out of it because they keep holding themselves back in terms of developing a story. They don't push. They don't try because they're worried that it's it's the numbers are too big. Oh my God, 60,000 words is literally twice as many as I normally write. This will take forever. And they start catastrophizing all these future what-ifs and conditionals that don't really have anything to do with it. But you're not gaining anything in being hyper-minimalist. You're not improving your writing trying to get it done as quickly as possible or as simply as possible this is not like we're not making a zen cone here we're not trying to build a haiku we're not trying to you know name that tune in under three notes so don't be a minimalist that doesn't mean be a maximalist either but don't go out of your way to intentionally starve the story next thing entangling conceptually. Entangling is not the same as complicating. Oh man. Uh maybe I should address this specifically to the die-hard anime people. But there's a great deal of confusion in the in the first draft, second draft, uh early writing spaces that what you need to do in order to be seen as a competent, well-qualified, good writer is to create something that is complicated as hell with, like, a million moving parts and a lot of, like, shifting allegiances and this this overwrought level of, like, you can't trust anybody. Every character's gray rather than black or white. And really what they mean, they keep talking about how complicated something is or how, you know, how many moving parts it all has and how, you know, how much of a house of cards or a row of dominoes it is. They use words like complicating in an effort to demonstrate that they're real clever and they thought up a lot of shit. What they really mean is entangling. Entangling is the idea that narratively you have stuff in your story that is stacked or tied to other stuff in your story. It doesn't have to be necessarily complicated. It can be very straightforward. Um, we have to win the boat race in order to keep my girlfriend's grandma's house because it's also where we happen to be living for the summer. That's entangled. That's not the same as complicated. That's pretty straightforward. Or uh, we're the frat on the, the college campus that's always in trouble And in order to, you know, wreak our vengeance and and get one more chance, we have to do something really hyper-ballistic and sexually aggressive and violent. That's not complicated. That's just entangled where everybody's fate falls together. Complication dooms more stories than it aids. Complication is not a sign of, like, strong writership. Complication is just complication. You're just cluttering everything up. Again, though, that doesn't mean we have to solve it by being hyperminimal. It just means, hey, don't go out of your way to make something complicated if you think it's what you need to be doing in order to be seen as a good writer. You can entangle pieces, make them dependent or, or conditional on one another without things being hyper-complicated. And now, lastly... We want to make sure, above all else, as frequently as possible, we are aiming to tell the best story we can. What is best for the story? What is the coolest thing that could happen? What is the, what is the, the most striking, electrifying, easy? Easy is probably a misleading word, so let's find a different word, John. What is the most intense way to directly make the story better? as opposed to going out of your way to try and get everyone to see how clever you are. Let's use a real-world example here. Let's suppose we are doing a modern take on Sherlock Holmes. It's in the public domain. We totally can now. So, okay, we're going to do a modern take on Sherlock Holmes. We could tell the best modern-era Sherlock Holmes story possible, Or we could go out of our way to maybe tell an okay Sherlock Holmes story, but go out of our way to make sure you know that I, the person who wrote this, really, really is clever and really, really loves, essentially, the sound of our own voice and text. We laugh at our own in-jokes. We like leaning in and doing all these same things we always do. You want to make sure you're prioritizing the best story possible ahead of trying to show off how clever you are. This is going to make your second draft a lot more substantial because you're going to strip some of the ego out of it. It's not about you. It's about making the best story possible. Those are the keys to improve. More more these than like, oh, you got to make sure your action scene has a car in it or don't forget the whales. Aim to handle these things no matter what your story is. Whether we're talking about a romance novel, whether we're talking about a spy thriller, whether we're talking a period drama or uh, uh, a comedy or anything, aim to make the best story possible. Entangle it instead of complicate it when it needs to be entangled. Don't hyper starve it and go minimalist. Don't bloat it with characters. Qualify and add depth rather than explanation. And make sure you are always looking to work with what's existing rather than constantly bolting new stuff onto it. And no matter what you're writing, your draft will be improved compared to the draft it came before. It occurs to me that I've, I've wrangled this and built this around second drafts. But if you're a writer out there listening to this who's written like 12 drafts, 15 drafts, 30 drafts, 40 drafts, you've been writing for 15, 20 years, And you can't really seem to make any progress. You can't really seem to to get past being stuck wherever you're stuck. Try using some of these tools. I think it might leverage a few things for you and clear you a path to go forward. But let's move on to the next step. Part three. It's time to talk about red flags. Yes, by the way, if you're looking at this graphic, that is a golf course on fire. And you would be surprised how easy it was to find pictures of burning golf courses. So, yeah, it's important to know this, especially for second drafts. The majority of your issues, whether they're character development problems or plot pacing problems or just general writing problems or story structure issues or whatever, Golf courses should be illegal, yes, but on fire is an okay option. Well, there's a fiery theme here. Yes, golf courses should be illegal. The same with lawns. Lawns should be illegal too. But the whole point here is I'm trying to talk about red flags, and the only thing I could think of with a red flag was a golf course on fire. It made sense at the time. Back to my point. In the first 25 pages of your text, about 90% of your problems exist. Oh, you have a problem writing clear dialogue? It'll show up in your first 25 pages. You have a problem with pacing and you tend to just keep adding and adding and adding stuff without moving things forward? It'll show up in your first 25 pages. You tend to do a lot more telling than showing? Yep, first 25 pages. Red flags. Let's talk about a lot of them. I make my living dealing with people's red flags. I make my living coaching writers, walking them through what to do with their red flags, and how to fix their problems. And I've identified a whole ass stack here. We're going to go through one at a time. Here are your red flags to pay attention to. Not just in your first 25 pages, but chances are if you solve these in your first 25 pages, you will know how to solve them when they show up again later. First one. Too many characters, not enough protagonists. What does that mean? Well, let's suppose you have a large ensemble in your story. And they're all named and they all have backstories and they all have shit to do in the story, whatever it might be. But we're not sure who the main character is. It's one of these people somewhere we could, you know, throw a dart and pick one, but we keep developing it. We keep adding this in. Oh, we could add the brother in, and the sister and the cousin and the guy next door and the, the guy at the gas station and the, and the nurse and the, the coffee person and this, that and the other. Too many characters, not enough protagonists is going to leave your story feeling really, really scattered. Really, really all over the place because the reader doesn't have one character somewhere they can attach to and follow and root for and feel something for. You're spreading too thin the amount of emotional connection the reader is going to generate. No, no. Having 5%, I'm making numbers up, 5% attachment to 12 characters is not the same as being very much attached to one or two characters and having everybody else take a back seat. This is generally a decision making problem. Pick and choose who your main character is or main characters are and relegate everybody else to second tier. Make them secondary. It's fine. Now, What if we swing this the other way? What if we have too many protagonists? What if everybody is a point of view character in our MPOV mega fantasy heartbreaker story? Well, that's a different kind of decision-making problem because now instead of picking one and going with it, instead of picking one and relegating, now you've decided that everybody's point of view matters. And you've again made it difficult for the reader to follow one character above all. What you're gonna end up doing in that case, by the way, when you have so many points of view, is your reader's gonna pick favorites and skip the rest. Uh, example. Let's suppose you're writing a giant fantasy series about a pointy metal sword chair. Perhaps we're gonna follow Peter Dinklage more than anybody else and just kind of skim through the rest of the episodes on Fast Forward. You solve this, by the way by limiting the amount of point of view you don't need as many as you think you do i swear to you professionally three is probably the ceiling and even three for a lot of writers is pushing it in a big way but too many protagonists not enough secondary characters makes any story feel way more overly substantial way more complicated And denser. And I mean, dense in the same way that like a math textbook is boring and dense, and it becomes hard to follow. On we go. A lot of writers suffer, especially in their first 25 pages. They race super fast to get to the main plot. Like, oh man, I gotta get you to the main plot. Some people get to the main plot on the end of page two. Too fast, way too fast. Now, that doesn't mean like you have to wait some absurd number, like you can't no main plot until page 100. Again, we're not living on the extremes here, but you don't have to race to the plot. A lot of writers swear this stems from this idea that, well, if, if I don't bring in the plot, the reader will be bored because they justify it as if I were reading this, I would be bored. And really all they're doing is just trying to find a way of disguising the fact that they don't have a lot of confidence in their writing. I'm going to talk about how I'd be bored cuz it sucks cuz that's really the unspoken part of it. And it doesn't. But you don't have to race just to the main plot. You can develop some story. You can spend some time painting a picture. You can spend some time, you know, saving the cat if that's your vibe. You can you can take some time. You have plenty of space. 80 to 90 even 100,000 words. That's a lot of words and it's totally okay if like the first 2 or 3,000 of them show us stuff about the characters. show us stuff about the world, but aren't immediately, you know, related to the fact that these teenagers have to go fight a clown in the sewers. That said, another major red flag are completely, absolutely pointless opening scenes. Here's how we determine pointlessness versus, I guess, pointfulness? What's the opposite of pointless? Pointful. Necessary. Critical. Good. A pointless opening scene is an opening scene that doesn't teach us anything about character. Doesn't teach us anything about world building. Doesn't teach us anything about plot. And it's just kind of stuff happening with characters we maybe don't see again. And there are some writers out there who will say like, oh, well, in book two, those are the main characters. But we're not reading book two. We're doing book one. Stay on topic. Pointless opening scenes can almost always get cut. I say almost. It's not universal. There are not as many universals as you might imagine. But a pointless opening scene scatters reader attention. And it forces you as a writer to try and pull the story back on track. And that, that can get real jarring depending on how disparate your opening is from the thrust of the main story continuing that sense of jarringness when character arcs don't matter or really any arc, be it plot or character, when the arc doesn't matter, the reader's going to feel like it just doesn't like they wasted their time. Like the story didn't have any, it wasn't important because if ultimately the character goes through this process. You know, they travel to Mount doom and throw jewelry in a volcano or they sell their soul in order to play the blues or, they meet strange Dutch Tom Hanks and become Elvis. If at the end of the book, they just go back to being who they were at the beginning of the book. It's going to make the, all the events of the book, no matter how big or dramatic or smaller, or intense or crazy or whatever, it's going to make them feel like it didn't matter. And that the reader who followed along and wanted this character to grow and change and accomplish stuff, it's going to feel to the reader like, ah, shit, I just wasted my time and my money. This is not a position you want to end up in as a writer. Make sure your arcs matter. Make sure the results of the arcs persist. Let's get a little crunchy for the next one and talk about the extremes of dialogue. We don't like extremes. Extremes murder second drafts in their sleep. Extremes in dialogue mean either everybody's talking to nearly the point your novel is a screenplay or nobody's saying a a word But somehow you're just supposed to trust the reader to understand that every character knows each other really well so that they don't really need to verbally communicate. They can just share a look. When you have too much dialogue, when too many people, or even if it's just a few people, but they do all the talking ever and all of existence. The problem there is that too much talking makes everything else feel like it's come to a stop. And a lot of writers treat it that way. Okay, I have a three-page conversation about lunch. While we're having this conversation, I'm not the writer going to talk about, you know, the traffic outside or the rainstorm or the impending wedding next door or this, that, or the other thing. I just want the reader to focus on the talking. The world doesn't ever, 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 ever pause just because talking is happening. It, it just doesn't. Don't forget that. Likewise, absolutely silent books, no matter what they are, they don't feel terribly realized because some dimension of the way a reader engages with a character is absent. Now, there are exceptions to this. You can spend a lot of time developing how a character feels, and you can spend a lot of time and space talking about what a character is thinking And that might make a difference. However, ultimately, you need some amount of conversation, some amount of verbalization, some amount of dialogue. Even if it never comes from our Clint Eastwood cowboy and it comes from everybody else, it still has to be there in some way, shape, or form. The extremes of dialogue will just smother you in your sleep. Make sure your dialogue exists and make sure that while it happens, the story doesn't come to a screeching halt. Next. I see this one a lot from a lot of writers who are really insecure about whether or not their writing is good enough or whether or not they're doing okay or whether or not whatever they've just written is fine or all right or serviceable or great or whatever. And there's this effort to over-explain stuff and try and be complete, like we're trying to get 100% on a platinum trophy in a video game. Over-explaining, over-writing is the idea of Instead of just saying one or two elements, developing one or two adjectives about a noun, you know, talk about the old beat-up dining room table, talk about the, the lumpy mattress, rather than just talk about the nature of the lumpy mattress and move on from there. You spend extra time and space and words really getting into, like, the history and lore of the stupid mattress. It's not that big a deal. The bed is old. It's lumpy. The dining room table is third or fourth or fifth hand. It's scratched and dinged and stained. It doesn't need to, like, get right now in chapter one super deep into the history of, like, well, that lady next door got it, and then she died, and now the table is haunted, and then the table went to an exorcist. and Like, you don't need to over-explain things, especially right up front. What that's going to do in the course of that over-explanation is slow everything down to a degree where the reader's going to kind of feel like, the story should be happening, but instead you've bored them. You've given them a reason to pay less attention because you're still talking about the damn table. The goal when you write, and particularly the goal of a second draft, is not to be complete. And I mean complete in the sense of your reader knowing every atom of everything. It's not like that at all. Your goal is to be full. Tell as much of the story as you can to satisfy the conditions of it being accurate and entire more so than, okay, you have to learn about the shoelaces. Now, now we're going to talk about the blades of grass. Now we're going to talk about that blade of grass. Ooh, we should also talk about that dandelion. You don't need to cover everything. The reader doesn't ultimately care about everything. There's not enough brain space in the world. Just, Tell them the best story you can, not the most completionist story possible. Let's move to the next one. I see this one a lot from writers who, in an effort to conceal their anxiety or their deprecation of their own thinking and writing and stuff, they decide that they know the story. It's in their head. They totally get it. But um, they don't relate to the reader. They just know what they mean, so the reader should know what they mean. And what happens is the camera. Remember, every sentence is a camera. The camera doesn't move or develop anything. It's just a procession of facts. This happens, that happens, this happens, that happens. They get in the car. They drive. They stop at a stop sign. They they go through the intersection. They go to the next traffic light. They turn a left. They go down the street. They get behind a, tr- a garbage truck. They wait for the garbage truck to go by. This, then that, then this, then that, then this, then that. We don't get a sense of, of any more detail beyond what is immediately imperative for that sentence. We don't talk about the weather. We don't talk about the day. We don't talk about character thinking or feeling. We don't talk about the nature of the city. We don't talk about whatever else is going on it's just that immediate stuff in front of the character for the sake of this sentence and maybe maybe if we're lucky the next sentence ahead when that happens your story is a pain in the ass to read because it feels like a very disconnected chain of morse code dot 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 long pause dash 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 dash, dash dot dot dash dash long dash Rather than being this sort of evenly dispensed, well-maneuvered tale that the reader is able to consistently and constantly imagine as we go, where that we are adding details cumulatively. Okay, so we started with the car. Now we're learning a little bit about the car. Now we're, the car is driving. Now we're learning about the person driving. Now we're getting to the stop sign. Now we're creating tension. Now we're moving forward, where it's a snowball rolling downhill as opposed to a rock- skipping across the surface of the water and ultimately it gets wet but nowhere near as much as if you splashed the water all over the rock if that rock snowball mixed metaphor makes any sense feel free to yell at me and tell me it didn't but the, the point is you've got to move the camera you have to develop things the reader's looking for that mental movie you have to give it to them yes it's in your head i hope it's in your head it's your story But at the end of the day, you're trying to broadcast the movie from your head into the reader's head. And if you're taking the shortcut of just, well, I know what I mean, you're not doing it right. And it's what's making your second draft a pain in the ass to deal with. What should the reader imagine when they read a particular sentence? What should they see in their brain? How should they feel? What do they need to know? How should they feel about what they need to know? How, how should they feel just in the course of going through the story? That's the critical material that's going to help develop the body of this second draft so that it's not just a recitation of characters. Do one, two, three, four, five things until the story's done. And now we kind of wrap this section up with a big kind of abstract problem before I get a, another cough going. Hang on two seconds. A big abstract problem, a general lack of decision-making. Look, writing is the act of making decisions. You are not going to be able to get through a second draft without making some decisions. Some of those decisions are going to be really easy. Like, I don't want to write a walrus in this scene. And some of these decisions are going to be way more complicated because you're going to have skin in the game. You're going to sit there and at some point realize, oh, shit. I can't give them a sister. There's no room for a romance arc here. My battle scene's taking too long. There are too many scenes where collectively we're not doing enough. Stuff's happening, but it doesn't ultimately matter, and stuff gets ignored 10 pages later. You've got to make decisions. For a lot of writers, they're sort of opposed to that because it feels like they're like disconnecting from their creativity, that decisions are the opposite of of their imagination decisions are too rigid and imagination is this fluid wavy thing in the air and I promise you it's not I truly truly want to get this across to you decisions you make will facilitate your imagination because it'll tell you what's in what makes the cut and what doesn't and I'm not saying you have to make like really rigid fixed in stone decisions everywhere every time but over time, over the course of writing, as you see your writing get better, you will realize that the decisions you make, the questions of, well, is this okay? Did, is this, does this sound okay? Is this good? Did I, did I do okay? Is, is this all right? Um, is this bad? If you've ever asked anybody, if you've ever asked me, if you've ever asked your writing partners, if you've ever asked your friends, if you've ever asked you know yourself these questions, well, is this good? Did I do okay? Would it be okay if I fill in the blank here with a thing you want to write? If you've ever asked those questions, first of all, you're not bad or wrong for asking those questions, but the issue fundamentally is, yeah, you're fine. How do you know you're fine? Because you wrote a thing. I don't know if it's okay that you wrote a scene where the two characters meet, you know, uh, Jerry Garcia resurrected from the dead. I don't know. Write it. See if you do a good job with it. See if it works for your story. If it does, hey, guess what? It is okay because there's the proof. But to constantly question whether or not it's good enough, to, con- it's, to constantly wonder if it's okay if you did this or did that, is entirely normal. But the person who gets to decide whether it is or whether it isn't okay to do or write or think or take the story in a particular direction isn't the reader. It's not me. It's you. You're the writer. You're in charge, which is why when a client comes to me and goes, Is it okay if I do this in my story? My answer is some version of, Well, let's go ask the writer of the story if it's okay that the story does this. And if you decide you want to do it, then I guess you're doing it. You can do it poorly. That's not the same as it being a bad choice. That just means you need to write it better the next time. You know, it's, it's not a bad idea to have a scene. It's not a bad idea to have this event happen. It can be good if you've written it well, if it is constructed in such a way as to develop the story and move things along using all the tools you will have learned along the way. But it isn't automatically bad just because you thought it up. And it isn't automatically bad if what you've thought up is divergent from what we've already been doing. You've got to learn about the value in making decisions and trusting yourself once you make a decision to be able to do something with it. Yeah, if you decide that, okay, what this story needs is a hippo, well, then you, you write me a hippo. Write a hippo. See if it works. If it doesn't work, that's not because you're a bad writer. It's just that you've been trying to fit a thing that doesn't fit into your story. You can be a great writer and still put a hippo where a hippo doesn't belong. Make decisions. Writing is the act of making decisions. This matters. What other people think about those decisions, by the way, That's on them. You're never going to know what all the readers are thinking all the time. The internet gives a voice to a lot of shitty readers with a lot of just terrible opinions, but that does not mean those opinions are fact. And that does not mean that you have to carve those opinions into stone and carry them with you. Somebody didn't like your story. Somebody didn't like your book. Well, fine. It sucks that universal praise was not given on this particular day. But that doesn't mean you're bad or wrong just because one person somewhere didn't like a thing. But if somebody else did, if 10 other people did, if 30 other people did, that's fine. But most critical before all these other people, did you like the thing you wrote? Are you happy with it? Do you think... Not so much, you could always do a better job, because sure, the anxious among us will tell you, you could always beat yourself up and swear you could do a better job. I will get off this stream in a few minutes and completely think I could have done a better job. But past that and beyond that, you have to please you first. And the best way to do that is to make decisions, stand by them, and try your best in trying to produce the content of those decisions. Yep, I'm going to add horses. Cool give it a try. Do your best. That's how you push back against that decision-making paralysis. That's how you get around that voice in your head that tells you like, well, I don't know if the readers are going to, nope, nope, don't, don't even go down that road. I don't know if the, nope, don't, don't. Mm -mm. This is about you and what you want. And you happen to, when you start writing it, you know, out, you are planning on intending to share this with others. And depending on the the clarity with which you've crafted the thing for them to imagine, people will either get on board with it and dig it or they won't. But that's not your fault if they don't. You can't make everybody like your second draft. It's a second goddamn draft. We're not carving anything in stone here. We're just trying to make it better than a first draft. But we have to learn the value of making these decisions. When you don't, if you decide like, ah, John's full of shit, this isn't, this is pointless. When you fail to make decisions, your stories spin their wheels and you never make enough progress and then you get stuck. Then you get frustrated. Then you give up. Make decisions. It's how you fix the things that are wrong. On we go. To part four, your goals. And I'm wrapping things up with this section because, well, it's a good section to wrap up on goals. You need to have some. Now I'm identifying here four goals. You're more than welcome to have more than four goals in your life. I certainly do. But for the sake of this second draft, for the sake of your writing, for the sake of your long-term publishing or the long-term creating plans, four goals, please. And I'm going to try and do this in a way that does not make these goals sound like pressure, but I'm sure that there's somebody out there listening to this right this second who is going to hear this and go, oh my God, John is just adding the weight onto my back. Oh my God, this becomes a lot harder. I promise you goals aren't about pressure. Goals are just goals. The pressure you're adding is in your projecting in how hard or easy or difficult or complicated or direct it's going to be to try and do these goals. You're thinking about the work. I'm talking about the reward. It's okay to feel pressure. It's okay to push yourself. It's okay to have some goals. It's okay to try your best. It's okay to change your goal along the way when you find out that you were you know, swinging way above your weight class, and you were trying to aim for a thing you're just not ready to do. That does not mean you'll never get there. It just means that you're not there yet. And you will get there if you keep going, and if you get help, and if you practice. But you're not wrong or bad or at fault for coming out of the gate on day one saying, I'm going to try this big thing. That's great. That's wonderful. But remember, it's a long journey. And along the way, you're going to grow and change just like your draft is. So we have four goals to bear in mind over the course of shaping an entire second draft. First and foremost, we have a design goal. Your design goal is what this story is supposed to be when it's all said and done. It's the story of Two small, hairy-footed people who throw a ring in a volcano while a very pretty elf and a very stubbly man and a short dwarf fight some orcs. It's the story of a a small-town girl living in a lonely world. Uh, It's the story of uh, her name was Rita, and she dances on the sand. The design goal is the functional goal of the story. You were trying to tell this story, whatever it might be. A knight chasing windmills, thinking they're giants. The story of a chemistry teacher who develops lung cancer and then becomes a drug kingpin. Whatever it might be, your design goal is the goal you have for the story. It's the goal the characters have. It's the goal for the arc. It's the goal for the plot. It's the design goal. It's the goal you keep in mind for making the thing. Moving forward, we move to our production goal. So once we've designed the thing, once we've written the draft, and let's say we plan our our production goal to move forward in publishing, our production goal would be to take the second draft to third draft, and then from third draft to publication. Our production goal is to move things forward, to put polish and organization and finishing touches on our book. That's our production goal. The production goal is a material goal. It's path towards long-term project. A production goal is part of a link. It's a a link in a chain of goals for a career goal. The career goal is your writerly goal. It's that sense of, hey, I want to do this a lot. I want to publish multiple stories. I want to be a published author. I want to make my living as a published author. I want to sell 200 books in my lifetime. I want Maybe that's 200 copies, not necessarily 200 individual published novels. Maybe. I don't know. You do you. But you have a career goal as a writer. Even if that goal is not, I want to publish. Maybe the career goal is, for the sake of me being a writer, it's just to write this draft. Career goal and production goal for a lot of people are going to be framed around the idea of publishing a book whether that's traditional publishing or self-publishing, but there's no shame, no harm, no foul, no wrong, no error in a production goal and a career goal that are just seeing if you can accomplish a thing, seeing if you can learn, oh, yeah, I can learn how to tell a story. And if that's what you're aiming for and that's enough, well, congratulations, you will have met the conditions for your production and career goal. But you have them. You, you do. I swear to you, you do no matter who you are, no matter how much you dig your heels in and tell me you don't, you have these goals. They might be passing thoughts. You might be a little embarrassed by them in terms of how intense they are or how like rigid they've been or how much they drive you. I, I promise you it's okay. You can be incredibly dug in on this stuff. I'm ridiculously dug in on my goals to the point where other things suffer as a result. That's why I have therapists. But the point is you're allowed to have goals. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're at. I don't care if you've tried 55 other fucking things and they've all failed. You're still allowed to have goals. You're an okay enough person. You're human. You're allowed to have them. I do want to talk about the fourth goal on our list, the other goal. The other goal doesn't necessarily have anything to do with career or production. It's more of an abstract goal. For some people, it's a goal of, I just wanted to see if I could be happy doing this. Or, I just wanted to try it and see how far I could get. Or, I just wanted to spend time with my friends. It's okay to have those goals too. Not everybody who writes is going to be or even needs to be a published author. Not everybody who writes is doing it so that their name is immortalized alongside the classical greats. Sometimes it's just a goal. Sometimes it's just, "Hey, I'm doing a thing just to see. No big deal. I'm not even thinking about publishing. I just I'm just writing because it's fun and I want to get better at it because I enjoy doing it." That's totally absolutely fine anytime. Again, whatever your goals are, as long as those goals do not directly contribute to the harm and pain and suffering of other people, chances are your goals are pretty solid. And it's okay to have them. It's okay to tweak them. It's okay if they change along the way. It's okay if after you try for a while, you realize, you know, I'm not really real jazzed on this whole traditional publishing thing. The rejection part kind of sucks. I'm just going to go direct to consumers. Or maybe you'll say to yourself, gosh, I really cannot fucking stand Amazon. They're a hellscape I don't want to deal with. I'd rather just get my money directly. I'm going to sell this off my own website. Or maybe it's just, I've never finished a goddamn thing in my life, and I'm damn sure going to try right now to do it. Whatever your goal is, to whatever degree it is, I promise you it's okay. But please, don't give up your goal at the first sign of trouble. Don't do what I do. Do better than me. When the, when the going gets tough, my first instinct is to drop a thing and pick up something new because it's more fun and because I haven't screwed it up yet. That cost me way too, many time, way too many years, way too many dollars, way too much time in my life. And I'm asking you politely and kindly, please do better because it's what I should have done. So I'm as much talking to me as I am talking to you. It's okay to have goals. It's okay to be intimidated and scared and unsure and frustrated and overwhelmed. But that's why there's help in this world. That's why there are editors. That's why there are coaches. That's why there are writing groups. That's why there's all different kinds of stuff. You just need to be brave and ask for help. Goals are good. Get some. That my good and dear friends is everything I got. If you're here listening to this and you've got questions, this would be the moment for questions. Big, small, covering anything else. I will, you know, do a quick little wrap up about things, talk about tomorrow and we'll get out of here. Questions, anybody? I'm so glad you love the pep talk. I'm really, I, I, I love pep talks. By the way, if you ever want like a pro level pep talk, uh, if you jump over to the Patreon, there's an entire tier dedicated to pep talks. Uh, There's one person, I don't know if they're going to listen, I'm probably going to listen to this on the podcast afterwards. There's one person in on that Patreon tier who gets a daily pep talk. It's one of my favorite parts of the day. What's a good goal to start writing? What a great question. I love that question. A good goal, if we're talking word count, because you want to talk about a tangible thing, if we're talking word count, maybe a good goal would be 500 words. Do 500 words consistently, because that's going to be at least a couple pages, and consistently is a scale set on your own. If that seems too big... If that seems too crunchy, let's scale it back. How about we try to dedicate one day a week where you spend 60 to 90 minutes at least, but we're aiming for 60 to 90, focusing on writing, nothing else. Close down all the other tabs, shut off the other programs, just sit and write. 60 to 90 minutes, one day a week. That's a great goal to help you get started writing. That's a lot easier way to approach this sort of stuff than sitting here going, I'm going to write a story in 30 days. I mean, you can. Sure, go ahead. But ultimately, don't. What's a good beginner production goal? Production-wise, I would honestly say aim for, other than finish the damn thing, I would say aim for somewhere between 500 to 1,000 words on the regular. Get to 10,000 words and see if you want to keep going. Get from 10 to 20 and 20 to 30. Work so that 10,000 is your big goal, your big aim. And that way, even if one day you write 500 and the next day you write 3,000 and then you take three weeks off, you're still aiming at a milestone. I think 10,000, if you've never started, if you've always struggled... Doing it in chunks of 10,000, I think is a reasonable thing to do because it's big enough to be substantial, but not big enough to be like, I got to write a whole book, 10,000 words. It's about 30, 35 pages, I guess you can, you can learn a lot about yourself and learn a lot about how you tell stories in 30 pages. I'd aim for 10,000 words and then reassess to see if i was really committed to see if the idea made sense to see what i needed to get to the next 20,000 to see where i wanted to go 10,000 Great question. Anybody else? But yes, by the way, if we're if we're looking at this from the tail end, yes, finishing once you get to 65,000 words or anything over 60,000 words, shift into that gears where you can finish 60 to 70, 70 to 80, anywhere past 80, get finishing. Your ability to finish is almost as important as your ability to develop because starting, starting is much less of a problem because it's just a matter of trying something. There's, less rejection tied to it. There's less sense of, Oh my God, I could fuck this all up. Also because you're starting, there's nothing you've wasted. If you were to get to 85,000 words and then realize you hate every part of it, you can feel like you've wasted your time. Or if you go query your thing and it gets rejected, you can very easily feel like, Oh, I've wasted all these weeks or months or years or whatever. You haven't. Um, Rejection does not equal waste. That's a podcast episode next week, but um, the the point is learning how to finish is critical because the only way we're going to go forward towards our goals, like I want to publish a book or I'd like to get paid, would require you to finish because we can't get paid for incomplete things. But yes, learning to finish matters. And it's a tough thing to learn. A lot of that comes from pep talks. A lot of that comes from recognizing distance from goal and making the steps towards that goal achievable. Because if I just go up to you and go, hey, finish your book, and I say something like, you're only 30,000 words away, that 30,000 seems like it's going to take forever because maybe it took you 10 years to write the first 60,000 words. That doesn't mean it's going to take you 10 years to write the last thirty. But if we break it down into something smaller, like, okay, you are nine chapters away from the end. You have ten scenes to write. You have two fight scenes and four conversations, then write a scene where somebody gets a puppy. You break it into smaller pieces, and all of a sudden it seems a lot more manageable. Because there are plenty of steps in this thing. The, the clockwork gears are always turning, and there are many teeth. So just break it into pieces one step at a time, and you will be surprised by how much you can accomplish. It's not a race. We're not trying to be faster than everybody else because there's no trophy or award for it. But you'll be surprised by how much you accomplish and how good you can feel about what you accomplish if you're willing to give yourself some credit for accomplishing it. Other questions, issues, etc.? Would you recommend structural, time-based, or word count-based goals? I don't think they're universal. I think, I think there's times and places to recommend each kind of goal. So let's cover that real quick. I would give a structural goal, like get up to the end of your first act, to somebody who has a pretty firm handle and they're comfortable doing the writing, but they're not necessarily very comfortable in framing a story. They want to take it all over the place. They want to just create and create and create. And the the structure is very translucent, very wax paper, very loosey-goosey, whatever you want to call it. You give a structural goal to somebody who needs to learn the power of boundaries and decision-making and to organize the story in terms of keep this, chuck this. A time-based goal like, hey, try to write every week for 60 minutes is usually what I would give somebody who needs the encouragement of repetition, who needs a goal that doesn't quantify how much, but it it creates a reason to value their time. So it doesn't matter if you write one word or a thousand words in the 60 minutes I tell you to write. But you've at least written, you've at least performed the task, and you can watch your word count grow from that. Certainly not as much as if you do a word count-based goal, but at least a time-based goal creates that consistency of habit that you regularly need to create the discipline necessary to develop and tell a story. If every week, every Saturday, you show up and do some writing, eventually you start doing that Saturday writing without too much thinking, without too much planning. It's just, well, this is Saturday. It's my writing day. I'm going to go do it. And you craft that habit and you install that discipline and you watch it transform what you've been doing at one level into what you do at a higher level. Lastly, a word count-based goal I would probably give to somebody who's really looking for that organizational ego stroke. Somebody who's really meticulous in terms of like, I know my story has to be X size. So you break it into pieces so that that number, 100,000, 80,000, 93,000, whatever, doesn't seem so daunting. The more crunchy you get with a word count goal, the more you can gamify it depending on the person you're talking to. How long do you think it'll take you to write 200 words? You think you could do it in an hour? think you could do it in 15 minutes. What would you, what would you do if it, if we set a goal like 300 words and I said, do it in an hour and you were done for 30 minutes, you had 30 minutes free. How would you spend that free time? Would you go get a cup of coffee? Would you run around the backyard with your arms waving like you just don't care? Word count based goals directly allow a writer to see the benefit in making progress because, Hey, word count goes up. And you move closer, one step closer to your goal, whatever it might be. A word count goal is also great for getting people to stop staring at the clock and stop worrying that it's taking too long or that it'll take forever or that it's not good enough and you get them just to produce content. Just make stuff. Just make stuff. That makes a huge difference for a lot of people. So, From person to person, I tend to offer or suggest one of those goals. Every once in a while, I'll offer two, like, hey, spend an hour or write a 1,000 words, whichever comes first. Spend two hours and see if we can write this chapter, whichever comes first. Mainly that's based on how I think they're engaging with their work and what problem they need to face, whether it's you need to get some confidence in your writing, so let's count word counts so you can see your progress. Whether you need to make some decisions, so here comes something structural, whether you need to understand that you can build a habit, so we go time-based, or we go structural because you need to learn how to write dialogue scenes, so just write a dialogue scene today. Whatever that might be and however that frames out, it's to specifically address a problem. It's specifically to make progress in a thing rather than just say, okay, go write, and you're sort of let loose. And like a dog at the dog park, you're just supposed to like run around and all of a sudden come running back with no real constraint. Or a little kid at recess. We want to we get away from just the, the free-for-all, like prisoners climbing the fences trying to get away. We want to we do this deliberately with, with a method so that we can build better craft and skills from that method. So I recommend all of those types of goals and all of those kinds of skills for all different kinds of reasons. It's one of my favorite things to do when I coach somebody. that discovery of what tools are going to help you unlock your level and get where you want to go and get better. One of my favorite parts, because I sit there and I'm like, okay, I'm talking to this person, I get a sense of their vibe, I see what they want, I see their writing sometimes, so I kind of get a sense of, okay, I know what I have to work on with them. And then it's, okay, well, what tools can I give them out of like 25 years of doing this shit, what can I give them today to help them get to the next step? What can I do to help them, you know, head off a problem three steps from now? What can we do now before the ship hits the iceberg? I love that stuff. I love that stuff so much because I can sit here in this bathrobe with this cup of tea and hang out and think my way through a thing. Love it so much. And then I, it turns around and it translates into people doing work, which is awesome to see. That's how books happen. I love that shit. Makes me happy. Other questions, issues, et cetera. Has anyone asked what the tea is this evening? Uh, No, no one has asked what the tea is this evening. The tea, by the way, is uh, just a very ice cold pint of pure leaf unsweetened that I got as an impulse buy at the grocery store earlier today. Because I had $2 in my hoodie pocket and I wanted to treat myself to a tea. That's what the tea... The tea tomorrow will be like full-on tea tea, like with leaves and shit. But that's tomorrow's tea because that's the chat. But for now, we're just drinking cold stuff out of a bottle. Thank you for the cup date. I'm always happy to provide. I do want to... I, I want to... Like my window over here to my right is... um it's closed, but I can see my neighbor. Uh, this is the neighbor who's in like, like the most dysfunctional relationship I've ever heard. Like they yell and scream at each other all the time. And it'll eventually end up on like Maury or a talk show. He, he just bought a bong. I know this because he's sitting on his back porch right now, trying to figure out how to use it. And I want to open the window and like yell instructions to him. Like, Hey man, here's where you put your face. But at the same time, I'm both really enjoying hearing him fumble while also, like, realizing that there's a lot of people my age who are just now realizing that they're no longer obligated or bound by the rules of their parents. And they're they're trying to figure out how to, like, be people. So has he ever seen a number? I, I don't know if he's seen movies or TV shows. But he, I mean, he's at least holding it the right way now. But he's really having some, like lighter breathing intake like he'll get there he'll get there and between now and then there will be such a cloud and a contact high permeating the whole neighborhood but um good job i almost said his name good job neighbor you'll eventually get high you you'd need it i would recommend shrooms honestly i think you would do better that way but for now you just keep working on that water pipe sir all right I think really, well, shrooms are a different discussion for a different day. I think really his consciousness needs to be torn open so he can, you know, be a compassionate human. But that's a different story for a different day. Ask me about that some other time. For now, anything else? Else we will get out of here. Everybody starts somewhere. Neighbors are setting goals. That's right. Everybody starts somewhere. This poor Shlomiel is over here with a big lighter trying to light up a bong. Oof. Okay. Okay. Oof. I feel so, I, I, I can't go over there and help him out, but you know, like, come on, dude, you're giving us all a bad name. All right. Shall we get out of here? Let's get out of here. Thank you everybody for being here. I really appreciate it. This was, this was a banger. I love this. I'm back tomorrow, by the way. Uh, Tomorrow, uh, 3.22, I will be right here for uh, the writer's chat. There are some amazing questions, including one on the myth, and including one on uh, how to fight back against AI that I think are going to be really, really worth your time. So I will see you right back here tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern right on YouTube and Twitch for more stuff. Now, if you liked this, if you enjoyed this, and you've got two dollars in your pocket and you want to support more stuff like this and become an actively better writer for two dollars go check out patreon.com slash john helps you write better i guarantee you there's enough stuff there after three or four years that you will have more than enough tools to help you write better two dollars a month they sponsored tonight's stream thank you so much for being here and i will talk to you guys tomorrow see you